Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, CEO of Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Why does a busy Hollywood studio do a podcast, you might ask? Black Hall is home of great movies like Jumanji, The Next Level, and fan-favorite series like HBO's Lovecraft Country. But for me, hosting a podcast is an amazing way to meet people and to connect to the community. I learn from each interview and from each person. My roots are actually in America's heartland, and though some folks might think I've gone Hollywood, I'm now just an Atlanta boy who loves to meet new and interesting people. And yes, some of them will just happen to be famous Hollywood types. I'm a dad, a businessman, but I also love to learn about the philosophy of human nature. So why a podcast? That's why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I appreciate you. Chris Ledoux is what some people describe as a marvel at his craft. With director and producer credits under his belt, check him out on IMDb, Chris Ledoux is a digital artist, or as the mainstream would say, a visual effects supervisor in film and television. We tracked down some of Chris's peers, and this is just a tiny sample of the accolades we came across. Chris is a man of many skills and as hardworking as they come. He has the ability to make miracles happen. That was the chief technology officer at Magnopus. He did the design and work of a whole team in a matter of days, not weeks. That was the VFX supervisor at A52. If Chris leaped over a building in a single bound, I wouldn't be surprised. That was the CEO at Furious Designs. There are compositors, and then there's Chris Ledoux. To say he's a one-man wrecking crew would be putting it lightly. That was the senior light designer at Luma Pictures. Chris Ledoux, founder of Crafty Apes VFX, is described as smart, damn funny, and determined to thrive. I welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast, Chris Ledoux. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today we have back on the podcast, Chris Ledoux. Welcome to the program, Chris. Hey, how's it going? I just learned the most interesting thing when we were talking ahead of time in, in that uh, you grew up in Alaska in a Pentecostal family. Yeah, Assembly of God Church in uh, Kodiak Island. My mom grew up in the Assembly of God Church in Nebraska. Really? She could tell you all kinds of things that were good and bad about that experience. Tell me some of the things that were good and tell me some of the things that were traumatizing. Well, well, luckily Alaska has a very low biodiversity, so there's no snakes there, no snake <laughs> handling. So uh, there's plenty of halibut handling. And uh, when I'm pretty sure when the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues, it was uh, Tagalog. My hometown was half Filipino, half uh, Caucasian. And uh, so it was, it was inter- I, to me, it was interesting. It's, it's growing up, it was normal. You know, I'm like, like talking to my friends. I'm like, Wait, you don't go to a place every Sunday where people chant and dance? And they're like, no, I, no. It was, uh, it was fascinating. I mean, it gave me a, uh, a strong base, I suppose. But I've seen some, uh, I've seen people passed out, you know, have seen people touched. And I remember one time, I think I was in eighth grade, there was uh, my first experience with what you might call a tent revival. But there was no tent because it's windy up there. 
And the uh, everyone in the church just broke out laughing hysterically, except for me. And I was like, it was like watching the forty year old virgin, which I didn't think was funny. I didn't understand why anyone thought it was funny. Like it was like it was like, oh, and people were like, it was like this uncontrollable, primal groupthink. I'd never seen anything like it before. And I, I don't, you know, at that point in your life, what just, you know, it was fascinating. What just happened? And uh, am I missing out on the voice of God? Yeah, it's like, well, you know, it's like when I go to a concert and I see everyone getting into it, and I'm not able to for some reason. And I'm like, you know, maybe if I drink enough or I, but I'm never able to, uh, I can't let go for some reason. I have to seriously override my prefrontal cortex to uh, to feel much. So, you know, I'm like, am I a sociopath? I wonder. Like, let me see. Let me kill this bug. No, I feel bad. No, it's like, <laughs> sorry, bug. <laughs> sorry. Like, um <laughs> But the, uh, no, it was, it was interesting, you know, cause we all, whatever, you know, we're products of our environment. So to us, everything that's normal. We assume everyone has that to some degree. And then I realized one day that this isn't how most of my other friends that would go to the, you know, the, the normal church are like, no, 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 we don't do that. And then I started reading some of the background on, you know, the assembly of God rising out of like the very impoverished South and, you know, traveling and making its way to Alaska. And, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. It's, uh. It's one of the most more interesting things I didn't realize I had in my life until I was older that, you know, it wasn't something most people experienced. Yeah. You grew up in the fringe of the fringe of Protestantism. Yeah. Right. Which Protestantism is a breakout group from Catholicism and inside of Protestantism today, I think there's 30,000 different denominations. 30,000? I believe so. Wow. Splinters of splinters of splinters. Yeah, it's got to be quite the tree. It's amazing. It's an amazing tree. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So then, where does that where did that leave you in trying to develop spirituality? If your early uh, experiences of things that were labeled spiritual felt confusing, I mean, I think it developed a natural curiosity. My uh, my father's his foundation of theology was that indoctrination was not a good thing, that if there was a God and he created people that were forced to worship him, it would be proof of nothing. And so that ultimately the gift that God gave everyone was free will. And mm. without choosing someone through free will, it's not proof of anything. My dad's a big C.S. Lewis guy. So with that, it developed a natural curiosity and questioning. So as I work on my own, you know, ideas, I mean, really what it led to is I just have to tell you, I don't know anything. That's where I'm at. <laughs> you know, I don't know much. I have gut feelings about things, but... Like we talked about before, I'm leaning towards Carl Jung meets quantum physics, mm-hmm. you know, and some sort of holistic connection in the universe that's uh, more apparent than we realize. I think it's fascinating to think of your dad being a big C.S. Lewis fan and being in the Assembly of God church. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I think in terms of the pure philosophy of the Assembly of God, he wasn't necessarily into that, you know, because we eventually switched in high school to a Baptist church. But he liked the, uh, I think he liked the energy and the spirit. The passion. Yeah, there was a certain, I th- my dad grew up extremely uh, poor. And they moved, uh, migrated from Minnesota to Seattle to Alaska. And the Assembly of God was not a church where people put on airs, so to speak. It, most groups of humans, you put them together, they form, you know, they form their own taxonomy and their own stratification to where there's a pecking order. And it becomes more about, you know, the actual grouping of the humans versus the actual idea of the church in the first place. And so I think he liked the idea that the church really 
serviced, you know, some of the poorer people, you know, what you might call the lower end, lower classes of the community. It was never, you know, we'd go there and, you know, my dad was a, a community pillar, white collar guy, but you know, the people that we, a lot of people go to the church were like, I'm like, Oh, that's the kid that wears a Metallica shirt and smokes behind the school. And my dad's like, yeah, that's why that's Jesus hung out with prostitutes. You're not supposed to go hang out with, you know, people that are driving Range Rovers. I think my dad was attracted to the church because it didn't put on a lot of airs. It wasn't subject to the normal sort of human interference for spirituality where people have to like worry about who's in, who's wearing what or who's in charge of the Sunday school or the PTA group or whatever. It felt, I think, to him a closer connection to what the whole point of church was because we would debate it because, you know, someone came with the bright idea to schedule church during Seahawks games, which was a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Especially in Alaska, given the time zone change when the Seahawks actually play, church is right there. And the Assembly of God, they don't know about schedules. They don't, you know, they might go for one hour, they might go for five hours and you never know. And that's the problem. And so I, uh, we would debate a lot. I'm like, why are we going, what are we doing here? This is my, you know, I have two days a week for a weekend and I want three hours to listen to the Seahawks. Cause I've been a fan since I was four. I was going to add, how'd you become a fan at four years old? You know, it's, and that's weird. We were talking about music and concerts for me. Football is the one thing where I can primarily let go and I can yell at strangers, throw bottles at them and threaten to kill their cousins. And I, I feel something. It breaks down the the barriers of my intellectualism right away. It just sweeps them away, and I go into full caveman mode. And it now, feels great. Did you play football as well? No, I played. Uh, we didn't have a football team in my high school. We had basketball. I, I played a lot of sports, and but you know, I just I love the game. It's one of the few things where I can just primarily let go. So you feel like a, when you're watching the game, do you feel more like a quarterback or a linebacker? Yeah, I would. I would love to go 50 years ago and play both ways. Mm. I think safety and. Uh, quarterback is quarterback and safety safety you're, you're you're reading the quarterback size and you're, you're sneaking mm-hmm. up and then uh you know i was a quarterback in the safety really mm-hmm. free safety strong safety uh, i played strong safety in in high school but i played free safety in college oh really played college ball yeah. not at biola i played baseball at biola oh, I, I uh i played first i just camped camped my my big butt there and just <laughs> you know, had my giant 10 <laughs> foot glove and just <laughs> and then occasionally i'd go you know they wanted to beat someone i'd go on the mound for a bit yeah no i i uh, my my football was um it's a really funny story because i played football at oxford in england okay yeah all right and um the way it happened was i was i was on the rowing team of my college at oxford keeble college and i was in the quad and some guys two guys come up to me and they just said hey you're an american right i said yeah i'm an american they said do you play football I said, soccer? No, I don't really play soccer. They said, no, no, American football. I said, yeah, I love American football. They said, well, you know, we have a team. And I said, like, with pads? And they said, oh, yeah, full full kit. <laughs> and I, and uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. They said, would you would you be interested in coming out and play, play with us? And I said, sure, I'll check it out. And I went out. And, I mean, it was like playing football in America at Yale in the 1950s. Wow, that's awesome. It was incredible. Running actually. plays and running plays. Running plays and running plays. I at the, the first half of the first game, I came in at halftime, and I said to the coach, he hadn't called one pass play. And I said to the coach, I said, you, you know we can throw the ball, right? And he said, well, we've never had a quarterback who could throw. And I said, all right, all right, listen. And I, and I called this guy Brad over who was on our team. And the way it worked in this league – is that because Oxford and Cambridge had so many Americans, the other universities didn't. And so these teams were really made up of all rugby players 
who wanted to play American football the way that American football players like to play rugby in college, you know, just mixing it up. And so they made this rule because of Oxford and Cambridge that only three Americans from either team could, could be on the field at any one time. And so all the Americans had to wear these big white A's on their jerseys to, <laughs> so that they could count and say, well, you can only have three Americans. So anyway, one of our Americans was this guy named Brad, and Brad had been an all-American cornerback at Stanford. But he was doing his PhD at Oxford in history. And in this league, there was no it wasn't like the NCAA that you didn't have five years to play for. If you were matriculated, you were eligible. So he was, you know, we had we had I had a twenty eight year old fullback who'd played uh, fullback at Pitt <laughs> and he was working on a PhD. And so it was just this ragtag crew. But so we, we come over at halftime, I say to uh, the coach and Brad here, I say, Brad, can you beat the guy who's covering you? He said, Oh, all day long. I said, so coach, on the first play of the second half, when we have the ball, we're going to score a touchdown. He said, how are you going to score a touchdown? I said, well, Brad is going to run a post and go. And he's going to leave his guys fast. He knows how to run a route. And I'm going to throw the ball up, and Brad's going to run under it, and we're going to score. <laughs> and that's what we did. And so it, after that after that first game, I had to go back and make up a whole bunch of um, passing plays. Under the, the the offense that this coach had been running for years, the wing T, yeah, right. Remember the wing T from like the fifties. Yes. And I had actually, when we were in high school, we 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 ran the wing T, and so I knew tons about the offense. But then I went back to the coach. I said, "Hey, coach, you know, I think you're missing a whole set of plays that are run out of the wing T that are all passing." He said, "What are you talking about?" And I just started laying them out for him, and they were all made up. But we incorporated them all into the offense, and actually, then <laughs> it got a lot more interesting. That's awesome. But it was it was not any high level of football, but it was a lot of fun. And I and I played uh quarterback and free safety only for the first like three or four games, and then the coach banned me from playing defense because I like to hit people too hard and he didn't want me to get hurt. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I bet it was a blast. <laughs> it was it was a blast. Anyway, so you became a Seahawks fan at a really young age. Today, like, what does a Sunday look like for you watching the Seahawks? Oh, well, it was really depressing this last Sunday. I mean, losing to the Giants is embarrassing. It's uh, They did not look good. No, they looked terrible. Like, luckily, the Steelers looked terrible, too, losing to the Washington football team. So maybe it was just a bad week for teams that were undefeated at home. But it was we, – we, we, we trap games are our curse. We get a couple a year. But do you plan your Sunday around the uh, Seahawks? Uh, during the season, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm working so much and, you know, doing family stuff every other time. That's the one, you know, it's, tell my kids, like, look, I, I just went three hours, just go away. You know, they're like, well, can I watch? I'm like, no, because you want, you want me to put on YouTube the entire game to watch, you know, your kid videos. So I'm not, no, you can go watch Minecraft somewhere else. And, uh, you know, whatever that Roblox crap is. And, uh, you know, no, it's, uh, my wife's into it, you know, at least she, she pretends at least. So that's enough. Where is she from? Uh, Los Angeles. Woodland Hills. So she didn't grow up. Did she grow up a, a NFL fan, or did she become yeah. one? No, she grew up as a Rams fan. Her dad used to uh, design. He used to, so the Cowboys train over in a you know around Ventura. Yeah. In some for spring for summer training, and uh, her dad had was buddies with Tom Landry, and designed some of their trophies and stuff. So she grew up sort of a pseudo Cowboys Rams Raiders high. She's not a proper football fan. She's a fan of fan of the game. Teams. Yeah, she's. She does it for me, which I appreciate. How about your kids? Are they are they growing up proper Seahawks fans? 
12th yeah. man. No, my uh, my oldest went to the uh, the year we won the Super Bowl. I went to every playoff game in the Super Bowl, and he came with me to the first game where we beat the Saints in Seattle, and uh, we had we were first row seats right behind the Seahawks. And uh, amazing. I mean, same thing. I could tell he really doesn't love it like I do because he's a dork, but uh, he he humors me. <laughs> okay, so let's take a step back away from football. Talk about how do you make the transition from growing up in Alaska to doing VFX on major motion pictures? I uh, So I was basically, uh, well, there's no better way to put this. I was, it was in Fairbanks, Alaska, and it was what you call king shit of Turd Mountain. And I was making local commercials in Market 203 out of 206 in the Nielsen's, working for the local uh, television stations. And this was like 2004. And I also had this little crappy little business this is Final Cut Pro. This is digital cameras that just came out a couple years ago. Doing my own cutting, doing corporate video for a Department of Defense, oil companies, making, you know, local, like, welcome to Fairbanks monster trucks, you know. Um, and I had a friend who had whose job I had taken up there, and he had made his way down to L.A. a couple years before that and called me up one day in the summer of 04 and said, hey, do you want to, uh, you want to go work on movies? I'm like, sure, where? He goes, San Francisco. There's this movie called Sin City. I'm like, never heard of it. And... He goes, you, you're going to be a compositor. I'm like, what's that? And I, uh, it was hard, actually. It was, seems weird in retrospect, but there was a debate because my right then I was about 26, and my shitty little company had exploded. And that month, I'd, I'd made like 30 grand that month, which at 26 in Fairbanks, I'm like, this is great. You know, it's like, I mean, you could buy, within a few months, I'm going to buy a house, you know. It's But then it was like, I did the classic thing. I like to do this thing when it comes to those decisions. It was like, cause I was going to have to throw the business away to do this. And I imagine myself at 36, then looking back, going both paths. And so I imagine myself still in Alaska at 36 years old, making the same thing and always wondering what if. And I imagine myself the other way and I didn't know what would happen. So when you don't know what's going to happen, that's a lot more interesting. So I, uh, throw everything in my truck, drove down the Alcan highway to San Francisco and, uh, had a bit of a culture shock at first, and uh, my brother, one of my brothers, came with me. And like our second night there, we uh, managed to buy a bag of oregano in the Haight Ashbury for uh, for about sixty bucks for an eighth. I was like, "Hmm, this isn't. I don't think there's THC in this, David." And he goes, "It's oregano." I'm like, "You bastard!" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but it was a bit of a culture shock. And uh, I'd gone to college in Oregon for a couple of years, so Lower Forty Eight wasn't completely unfamiliar, but. Oregon State's in Corvallis, Oregon, and San Francisco is shocking. And uh, But I loved it. It was an adventure. And uh, I was the best part about it is in Fairbanks, there was I was I what I was doing wasn't great work, but it was better than what anyone else was doing, but I wasn't being challenged. And when I went to San Francisco, I was at this company called The Orphanage, and it was the most humbling experience ever. You know, there were probably 100 and something people there, and I was the dumbest one and the least skilled and had no business being there. And so... It was, and I kind of in the deep down knew that's what I was doing, and it was a good thing. It was, I mean, to go into rooms to present your work and you're embarrassed, and you're like, crap, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I ended up just, you know, I'd do clock in for eight hours a day, and then I'd live there. I'd open up other people's work and see how they did stuff. And, you know, there was, you know, that's, I've got some crappy apartment off Craigslist with some really crazy people who uh, were really crazy. But I liked them. They were just, they discovered mushrooms at a later age, which was a very strange for people, you know. And uh, so they were classic San Francisco stories. So I learned everything. And then within a few months, you know, we finished it and they re-upped me for the next one. And a year later, I went to L.A. 
and did a job there and moved, moved to LA. And then I ended up at a crossroads early in my career, you know, about a year in now. And I ended up with this big choice at the time, I didn't realize it was a big choice, which was go back to San Francisco to work on uh, Brian Singer Superman or work on this, go to the central coast of California, a little town called Santa Maria, where there was a random company working on this thing called Pan's Labyrinth. And it sounded cooler to me. I just I'm like, oh, this sounds more interesting. I'm not a comic book guy. So I'm like, Superman doesn't, you know. And so I uh, went there and uh, was one of the best choices I made. Made lifelong friends. And uh, there's something about being in small towns which bonds people. And it was, that was a weird, I mean, I lived at the Holiday Inn for a year. They put me up at the Holiday Inn. So I lived at this sort of lower middle tier hotel for a year seeing the same people come through every couple months, you know, private investigators, because I hang out at the bar. And it was a strange place, because Santa Maria is about 100,000. Fairbanks is about 100,000 in the area. Fairbanks had 100 bars. Santa Maria had three bars. And so Californians don't party like Alaskans do. And so it was very, like, you know, it was like a lot of, you know, the community was just bizarre. You know, a lot of these weird new housing tracks where they take the same two designs and stamp them out 500 times, and then a lot of undocumented immigrants that weren't allowed to like get caught by the cops. Like it was a weird, bizarre place, but it's uh, one of the best times I ever had. And some of the coolest artists who a lot of them now, you know, cause that company went under, they now work for us. And, uh, yeah, no, it's just, uh, I mean, all I really want is a life of adventure, you know, so I've had it. Yeah, you've had it for sure. So, so how did you end up in Atlanta? So we started our VFX company in 2011 in, uh, Culver city. Well, mm-hmm. technically, we started off Washington Boulevard in Venice, um, Marina, Marina Mar Vista, I guess some call it. And uh, our first client was Tyler Perry. Is that right? For Lionsgate. And so I started flying out to Atlanta to help film some of his movies. And then one day, he uh, decided that he was not going to make his movies for a while. He was going to do some television. And, you know, I, was, I think it was Saturday morning, 2013, the summer. And I get this call on my cell phone, and uh, it's Tyler. And he's, you know, asked if I'd come to Atlanta to uh, do some uh, VFX work on his TV shows. So we came out here, and I immediately started, you know, looking at the landscape because I was here for like three months straight filming the show, and I realized there were really no VFX companies out here. But this, this credit was very attractive, you know. And it was there was some ten. You know, I looked at what happened in Michigan when their credit went away, but. I just, you know, you get those, you know, your subconscious intuition background processes it and spits you out an answer and you go, there's something here. And so I went back, told, you know, my, my brother's one of my partners and my other partner, Jason, I was like, I think we should expand to Atlanta. I think there's something here. And especially if we're, you know, doing Tyler's work, they get, you know, a tax credit if we do it there. And I really think there's, I think this place is going to blow up. And it's usually I'm not great at betting, but you, this time the bet paid off. And so... A few of us came out here and uh, started a beachhead with, you know, four people. And uh, now we were, we're up to 70 at our peak here. And, uh, yeah, no, it was just that's so I, you know, I told my wife, basically, you know, I got back. I'm like, hey, you know, she'd been in L.A. her entire life. You know, after, you know, 39 years in L.A., I'm like, have you thought about Atlanta? And she's like, oh, yeah, I've been there plenty of times. It's great. You know, so she was she's she's a natural adventurer. She was totally down to check it out. So and now we love it. Yeah. What are some of the things that um, that you being from Alaska and then living in L.A. and she growing up in L.A. and now living in Atlanta? What do you guys love about Atlanta? Um, for me, it's I mean, I like the trees, to be honest. I grew up in the woods. 
you know, my dad built a house in a next to a state park in a it's one of the probably the most northern northernmost rainforest, you know, because Kodiak sits in southern Alaska, so similar to Seattle, and it's a rainforest. And uh, you know, so I, I was I didn't know a lot about Atlanta really. You know, I just you know like every West Coaster, I was like, oh, the Confederacy. You know, that's where they hand out second place trophies. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I just, I just didn't, it wasn't on my radar. I just never thought of the South really. You know, it's a uh, and you know just like all stereotypes, I got here and. You know, coming from a small town, I met a lot of people that were, you know, similar, you know, not not the meth smoking, get pregnant at 16 similar, but the, uh, you know, just a sort of a, you know, a calmer way of looking at the world. And, you know, so I've, uh, I've, so the trees and then the people I've the, the shooting out here versus, uh, you know, in LA, I mean, cause I'm a kid who grew up watching videotapes in nowhere, Alaska, I go to the video store. So I'm, I'm enamored by movies. You know, there's still, I look at how I'm so lucky because I work on movies and you, you know, I'd film in L.A. because I'd, I'd direct small things out there. I'd be on set out there. And you would think these people were like, you know, 1905 coal miners in West Virginia. Like, oh, I got to shoot today. You know, I'm like, dude, this is, I mean, I'm not going to, I hate using that word blessing because it makes me sound like a bumpkin. But, like, it, this is a blessing. You know, you get to work on movies. And they're like, oh, I had to take the 105 down to the 110. And I'm like, yeah, you live in L.A. That's what happens here. And, like. Like, you're working on movies, like, oh, catering today didn't have the right vegan food. And I'm like, oh, dude. And, like, you know, and uh, and so I got out here, and people were excited to work on movies. They still mm-hmm. are, you know. And you go to locations, and I remember when I was in Savannah one time, and I was directing a second unit for Tyler, so I had to go get background plays for all the green screen. And, you know, my location scout took me to these places. I'm like, okay, this street looks fine. And... uh you know, we start shooting these plates because we just had this sort of carte blanche location permit. And these people all came out. And these people, within minutes, like these people had nothing. I'm talking like there were 10 people in the house. One of them worked, and she was the greeter at Walmart, which you, have, you don't have to do the math too hard to figure. And you're like, you know, and I, you can look around, and you know, anytime the power lines aren't buried, you know, you're in a poor neighborhood. And I was just looking around and going, and these, but they were so. They were like, what are you filming for? I'm like, yeah, Tyler Perry. And they were like, you would have thought I was filming, that I was, you know, the spokesman for Jesus. Like, they were like, what? what? You, you've actually talked to him? Like, yeah, he's, he's a person. I mean, I'm like, yeah, of course I've talked to him. Because you know, I had to check myself, remember that after being in L.A. for so long that, you know, coming from a small town, we would, you know, you could get a D-list celebrity to show up to Alaska. And they'd be like, Oh my goodness! You know, like, do you know who showed up? It was that it was that woman from Buck Rogers. You know, who? Aaron Gray. Like, and uh, they, uh, and so it, it struck me. Well, for on Tyler's case, how uh, how crucial he was to that community. Just random people. He didn't know. I mean, it was just it was so different. I was outside of Hollywood, and, and these people were so like, "Wow, you work on movies. You you're you're something." You know, I mean, the mayor even came out to me. He was like, and I'm like, no, I'm just a guy you know and so there's something about the culture here that's it's just it's it has it has a sense of community you know and you get that word commune from community um and it's it really is about helping each other out which ironic because so many of them are right wing but still we won't talk about the juxtaposition there but the uh You know, the right wing communes. I, I, mean, I thought they were left wing communes. That, I know that's the thing. That's the problem is the people that are all about community and small town values are really preaching communism, but they hate it. <laughs> 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 and so the uh, 
Um, they want the freedom to share. I want the freedom to shoot my community. Like, <laughs> and uh, so I've fallen in love with the people here, the work ethic. I mean, if you look at like what you've done here, like you, this is a, it's an opportunity. You know, I didn't grow up wealthy. You know, I don't, I don't know if you did. I don't. You know, it's like there's. This is a place where. When it's Boomtown, you know, you hear the stories about Fairbanks, Alaska, 100 years ago when they found gold and, you know, when the pipeline in Alaska in the 70s. And it sounds so cool. And that's kind of what this is. This is a, pl- a place for if you're ambitious. I mean, look at the, the mini economies that are being spun. I mean, we're here in a room where you're doing a podcast. You have a producer for a podcast. That's a mini economy that's a result of this industry, you know. And so all these things spin off. And so watching this whole thing develop and, you know, watching storytellers come up or people, you know, I just, I never thought of Atlanta, but I'm about to talk to independent filmmakers who tell me these stories that I can't even, re- could have never have related to growing up in Alaska. I'm like, like here, this happened to me growing up in College Park, you know, or like those, those poor kids in Savannah I was talking to. And so I, uh, I think, you know, it's funny because Southern Gothic almost feels like a genre now, but there is a. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm not articulating it very well, but there's some things, you know, I can't put into words properly. There's something about the culture here and the people and everyone I've met that's very, uh, it's ambitious and it, it doesn't feel like there's time to complain. Yeah, I, I think of Atlanta specifically as this really beautiful combination of New York Drive and LA Vision with southern soul it's great much more concise way of putting it yeah yeah (laughs) because oftentimes new york and la can feel soulless sure and i never experienced soullessness in atlanta no it's it's a good way to put it it's a it's interesting because in a lot of ways it's a transient city which means it, it in some ways it feels like a city with that's still trying to figure out its identity and so it's like i can if i go to little five points i'm like oh i'm in seattle I'm like, oh, there's a heroin kid over there. It's, you know, it's like, and then, but then I go to these other parts and I'm like, what is Atlanta's identity? And it's hard because LA's movies, New York's economy, and like Atlanta, I'm like, no, oh, the Braves lost again in the playoffs. That's why I think, you know, it's like, so I don't, it's, it's, it's cool to see it actually start to find this identity. It's, you know, it, it's becoming a tech powerhouse. It's, you know, and then the black community, this is where you can really succeed in business. And, you know, this is where I've succeeded in business. You succeed in business. And so the, uh, it's amazing. It's just, it needs like a, uh, it needs a different marketing department because I think a lot of people don't think of it that, you know, but you actually look at the stats, the upward mobility here is great. The, uh, the tech investment, the, the, there's this whole gaming industry that's rising up right now. That's huge. Massive gaming industry. And now we have this gigantic film industry, which people are aware of. But it's hard. It maybe it just, just takes time. I mean, some people still aren't aware how that Vancouver is like the king of the world from you know TV shows. Some, you know, but so it takes time, I guess, to, for Hollywood to sort of not have a complete stranglehold on we own movies. But I think you know once we close that final part of the ecosystem, which is you know I guess the first part, you know the uh, the financing to the distribution, and really start making our own stories here. I think you know that for for us the marketing will come along with it. But there's so many other things here. You know the the tech stuff coming out of here is pretty amazing. You know, you see there's a reason why Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, I mean, Google, the big four, they're coming here. And, and I think it's, it's something pleasant about it. There's something, I don't know, I think there's something about trees that are just, it's wonderful. Well, there's no doubt about that. Especially, you know, I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, where there are no trees. It's just desert. Oh, my. Um, and, then, uh, and then we moved to California, which is really 
a desert that that people figured out how to funnel water around to have fake civilization. <laughs> right? And then you come to Atlanta and it's a rainforest. Yeah. You know, fundamentally, I think we get as much rain as Seattle. More rain, actually, just not as many rain days, but more inches, yeah. Oh, I, mean, I didn't know that, but I knew that I knew they got that we got just as much um, in inches. Well, yeah, I think it's more inches, but less rain days. It's incredible. Well, at least when I read Wikipedia when I was drinking, so I can't. I'm not, not going to 100 percent back that up. Well, from a from a lifestyle standpoint, it feels like it's sunny here all the time. Yeah, and so we don't we don't get those Seattle days that are just gray on gray on gray gray for weeks and weeks where you don't see the sun. Oh yeah, the no. way you would in Michigan. Michigan winters are death. Oh no, it's yeah. This I mean, this is pleasant. I mean, even when even the last couple of days it's cold. I'm like, this is. I mean, I've filmed a negative sixty in Fairbanks. Like this is fine. Like this is it's it's completely livable. You know, actually the summers get too, too hot for me because I'm very northern. You know, where the humidity, I just I can't deal with it. But the uh, I'm slowly acclimating. But yeah, it's pleasant here. I think that the, the big piece in the ecosystem that will transform is when we get more Tylers, right? So Tyler obviously is the only uh, entertainment billionaire in Atlanta if you don't count Ted Turner, right? So Ted did it. And so Atlanta's already experienced a uh, entertainment billionaire. We have our second one in Tyler. And as this industry evolves and more and more money uh, funds content in Georgia, and that and that and that funding makes a lot of money. Then you'll start getting people that became rich in entertainment in Georgia, and that's when people then well, start really paying attention. They'll become rich, and they'll they'll be confident in investing in entertainment, which is one of the biggest things I've seen. Is people here are comfortable investing in real estate, agriculture. These are these are knowns. When you start throwing the entertainment model in front of them, they start getting you know they start backing off you know smartly, and the. Uh, so I think, you know, but you need that example. You know, we, you know, we're all lemmings. So I think we, de- I mean, Tyler's the best example. If we had more Tyler's, someone, especially because he owns his own content, he's, he hasn't done it, but he's fully capable of his own distribution at this point. You know, he's a mini empire. You start building more of those. At that point, you're like, it's just like we're seeing right now with COVID. A lot, we're examining our existing paradigms. Well, at that point, you're like, well, what do I need LA for? What is, what do they do that we don't? And it's like, wait, nothing. It's just a network. But what if I'm my own network? What if I'm the connection? Wait a second. I have a whole ecosystem here. And it's so like that's what I love about COVID in the sense that it's forcing us to examine a ton of paradigms and realize a lot of this stuff's made up, you know, from currency to, you know, to, you know, how we were, you know, all of a sudden we can work from home. Everyone's like, how come no one thought of this before? It's like they did think of it. Just, <laughs> you know, it's like it's just there were a lot of people that were benefiting from the existing structure oil companies, you know, that wanted people <laughs> commuting every day. And so like in our thing, we're, we're all work from home now, you know, until the vaccine, you know, is rushed, is pushed through and provable and they figure out if everyone's going to have to get the mark of the beast to see if they had it or whatever, you know, like once all, you know, once all that's through, you know, maybe some people will come back because some people like to socialize at work, but you know, it does force us to examine a lot of stuff about our, how our society evolved and then tweak it. So, for, for what we're talking about, it's like, what's amazing about Tyler is he didn't grow up rich at all. He just one day said, well, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And he realized you can do, you know, all, you know, it's like you, you've invested in a couple indie films. It's, it's all it's going to take is you'll build a library, you'll hit on one, and boom, all of a sudden, you know, Ryan Millsap is, he's the, he's the 
distribution. He's the funding. He's the production. Like, wait, I don't. What do I need? Why, why do I need? I can just hire my own P and A people. You know, and especially so with theaters now taking a hit, the day and day release. We're about. I mean, who knows where it'll go? We're about to see a massive paradigm shift, which I think is going to open it up for a lot of people to be able to do this. Well, you've you know you've taken all the skills and then started making your own movies. You've been traveling the world making movies. I know in Eastern Europe, oh, right? TV show, yeah, is yeah, it, TV show, yeah. What were you doing over there? Uh, we have a um, a low budget sci fi show in the CW that is low budget. It's a negative pickup TV show. So the uh, CW, you know, so the budget's not huge, but it's a blast. And so to make it work, we film in Bulgaria, and which a lot of people, you know, New Boy on is there, uh, Bufo. So that's where we film at because you know the dollar goes a lot farther there and and they're about to do tax credits which is mind-boggling how cheap it's going to be in comparison and so the crews are experienced they're good and you can have access to british actors which you know are in my mind the creme de la creme of actors and so the uh yeah we're able to get a show in the air for you know a much cheaper price than normal and so it's really a it's a blast it's a, one of the funnest things what, what what's a low budget Per episode television show cost to make in Bulgaria. Ah, uh, I'm on NDA for that. I can't say. Well, give me give me a range of like if I was you know if we were if we were spitballing. I mean, something. I think the average TV show nowadays. I mean, Game of Thrones by the end was spending fifteen to twenty an episode. An episode. An episode. Mm-hmm. I think your average broadcast drama probably spending two to three an episode, mm-hmm. depending on cast. So I think your average cable, you know, depending on the quality. Sub million, so so you might be able to do it for half a million in Bulgaria. Maybe, yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing, right? Yeah, and then you could bang out a whole show for five million bucks for ten episodes. Yeah, and if you were able to, you know, although this, unfortunately the syndication model is now broken. If you'd have done this twenty years ago, you'd be you'd be sitting really pretty. But not, I mean, television I think is still worth more than film by a lot. Well, the negative pickup, then you're selling all the rights to whomever. Well, yeah, if you, I mean, so when you made your movie, right, mm-hmm. you sold to Amazon, right? Yeah, well, we, we first sold it to uh, Redbox, okay. and then we sold it to Amazon. So I think, you know, TV's similar. You know, you get, you know, Sony to sell it, distribute internationally, sell the territories or whomever. You know, it could be Netflix, you know, buying out different territories. You know, you get your agent. And so it's very similar. You know, it's like what's nice about, uh, you know, television is I, I think that paradigm's about to change. Because if you get the concept of a season, well, what, what is that based on? Well, it's based on a broadcast cycle. In a production cycle. Well, if you're streaming now, why are we still stuck in that paradigm? I mean, we're sort of, we condition ourselves to do that. But it's like, I think you could actually, you know, if you view these things as mini movies, which is what they are, the, uh, I think, I think what I'm getting at is there's some, there's some stuff that's going to change. I don't know what it is yet, but that's going to change. Our viewing habits are changing. Well, the nice thing about seasons, even on the streaming, is that then they get filmed in a bundle, in a block. And then they get released and people get to binge for whatever, a week. Yeah. Or however fast they watch it. Some people, you well, know, two it, days. But uh, they get to binge watch that and then they wait for the next bundle. So it's not necessarily about... But soap operas don't follow that model. They're follow, They're shooting daily. No, that's right. You know, so there is, there is... I think there's... I mean, and then you look I at... I see what you're saying. You think there might be a paradigm shift to where some of these shows could become perennial... Oh, I think there might be a, a different ground. So you get Netflix and Disney; they're now releasing stuff weekly again. They, Mandalorian comes out weekly, and some some because Netflix was finding out is when they were letting stuff all out at once and binging it, you'd spend a crap ton of money on this big expensive show. It would 
be the buzziest thing for about three days. And then your next one would come out and torpedo your last one. So you weren't your long mm-hmm. tail of investment was not being hit. And so they've now started shifting a lot of their stuff to weekly and Mandalorian does it with Disney. So it's funny. We're now going back to, you know, back when we used to wait for the next Seinfeld episode to come out or whatever the, uh, there might be something in between. I mean, it was interesting. I was sad to see, you know, the, the Quibi experiment, you know, get hit during, you know, I think a lot of that was COVID or maybe we're just not ready for it, but there's a lot of viewing habits that are different. You know, I watch my kids watch YouTube videos and I study them while I watch them and I see like, what they find interesting you know of course there's the confirmation that yes their attention spans are terrible and hopefully they develop but if it's like i'm like i wonder 20 years from now if my children will actually be able to watch the last emperor or dr shivago or barry linden will they actually be able to sit through it and pay attention i'm like you know it's hard to say if that that mechanism isn't beneficial to survive in their environment then probably not why would that evolve so but if you think of it that way, then there, I think there's a lot that's going to, you know, let's I mean, even platforms. What would, what's going to stop people from popping up their own mini platforms? You know, there's too many platforms right now. We got, you got to go get sign up for Peacock, Netflix, Amazon, Disney. But, you know, I'm, if there's this niche sort of at broadcasting now, you're seeing these YouTube people with massive channels, massive millions and millions of views that are beating out shows that cost millions of dollars and are filmed for like $3 in someone's basement. What does that tell us? I don't know. I don't know. It, I just know that things are changing, and that we're sort of we're all going to become stars in the, you know the, sort of this Warhol esque prediction. You know, we're all going to become stars of our own show, and it's ultimately it's going to dilute things. You know, so I don't I don't have any answers. I just know it's a fascinating time to observe it. Do you think that Google YouTube is financially reaping all the benefits of all these kids watching? YouTube so much? Does it feel like they are actually monetizing all that? I, I would have to look at I remember when they first got YouTube, their biggest critic was Mark Cuban, who called him GooTube. He hated the idea. Now, and he was an expert in HD broadcast, of course, where he made his money. I don't I haven't looked at their financials. I don't I mean they got YouTube in two thousand six. So fifteen years later, I would think they're Didn't bad. they buy YouTube for like three hundred million? Something like that. It was, it was low. Yeah, it was it was a lot better than the MySpace deal. It was it was not much. It was five oh six, I think they sold. And uh, I, I think owning that kind of platform that's so integrated. I mean, I I've switched my television. I I use YouTube TV now. I don't have Comcast or anything like that. I I stream it on my phone. I do, and so I think they were forward thinking. Much how Amazon, you know, just like any business, didn't make money for a long time, but was getting a stranglehold on the market. You know, playing the long game, and so. I would think YouTube is a smart one because it's so integrated. At the end of the day, you have to have hardware to actually watch these things. And so by integrating it so well into the TVs and the phones, like I'm so impressed with Netflix. You can't go buy a TV now that doesn't literally have a Netflix button on your remote. How did they pull that off? I mean, that's that amazing. amazing. I mean, they're built. It's, it's just, I mean, how do you lose when you're actually built in? To the culture. You know, at some point, you know, there'll be some antitrust thing or something because it seems like, I'm like, I mean, now my latest TV now is, also an Amazon button. I was button. just going to say, I think there's an Amazon button now, too. So now they're safe. Yeah, but yeah. Two options. Is the Disney Plus button going to come out? or you know? And then On the Disney Plus TV, yes. Well, yeah, and then on top of that, now we saw the Paramount decrees. They're going away. So is Dis- Disney, Amazon, Netflix, are they going to come bail out some of these theater chains? Are you going to go to... Are they going to complete their ecosystem circle? Because mm-hmm. the decrees are going away. So what, what does that mean? You know, d- some people think it'll destroy independent theaters. 
or maybe it actually creates a whole different niche that they're able to survive, that you know what experience you're going for, that, okay, if I'm going to go watch The Avengers, I'm going to go to this Disney-branded chain, et cetera, and go through that whole process. But maybe, you know, so Amazon has rights to Lord of the Rings, which is episodic, but maybe we go watch it in a theater. Maybe it's an event. So, we, you know, say Amazon buys AMC, bails them out. Now you go to the Amazon experience, if you're a Prime member, of course, and, you know, Netflix has theirs. So it's going to, you know, but maybe if I want an independent, you know, well, two French people talking in a room about how their dad didn't hug him, I can go to an independent theater. And Smoking, I, of course. Yes, of course. It's like, oh, yes, it's, it's so hard after the war. Like, and so, you know, it's just, that's my, how I think of independent film. And so, uh-huh. which I love it, by the way, but, you know, it's like the, uh, so th- that's another facet. I mean, the Paramount Decree has been on since like, what, 1951? I mean, that's 70 years. Yeah. That changes everything now. If you can shove your one good movie and your 10 bad movies down the throat of people, which is why they got rid of it initially, what, what does that mean? And so I think from a, but it, to me at all, I don't know what that is. I just know that one thing matters, which is what Tyler's really good at. Content is still king. And if you can produce content that people want to see, if you're, you know, Blumhouse is brilliant at this. If you own the content, they're going to come to you. Because people have to want to watch you, whether it's a kid in his basement, Ryan's Toys, you know, selling YouTube stuff, or it's Scorsese, you know, or Fincher making Mank. Whoever owns the content, is creating the content, is going to be very well treated. What do you think about this idea? I, I think that the, the, the production companies are missing a huge opportunity to distribute movies directly to consumer and charge them like pay-per-view, like 50 bucks. Like, you want to watch Jungle Cruise, which is right now sitting on a shelf right rotting is supposed to come out in summer of 2020 it's now going to come out you know god knows when i think they could roll that movie out on disney plus and partner with apple partner with amazon whatever and say you want to watch jungle cruise the rock emily blunt 50 bucks well they already did it with milan how much do they charge there 20 30 bucks 30 bucks yeah we did a lot of work on milan and they did it a couple months ago and it was uh Semi-successful, I think. And uh, Universal did it with Trolls 2. I remember and, that. And they did actually a lot better than people thought. They made a few hundred million from one of the numbers I was reading. So that's that's what a lot of people... I mean, in Warner Brothers just announced everything in 2021 is going to HBO Max. Right, but, but that's coming right onto HBO Max without an extra cost, right? I'm not exactly sure on that. Mm. So there is, Disney's already established that there is premium pay-per-view. If you wanted Milan, even if you had Disney+, Plus, it's an extra 30 bucks. So that, that they've already tried that and that which you know i'm not in i'm not internal at disney i don't know how they view it if, if successful or not but that's a potential new model it seems like there's a, a, mo- a model for it or there's a market that people are sitting home on a friday night saturday night and they would get up and take their family to the movie theater if they could go but they can't and so to to pay 40 50 whatever 50 to me psychologically feels like the ceiling if, if it's not a Tyson fight at 50, it's feeling family, – families get weird. 30, 30 even felt a little steep because you're paying 10, 15 bucks a month, and then you're, for a one-time event, you're going to go double on one thing. Well, if it's premium, yeah. I mean, people did. You can wait four weeks. It's free. Yeah, you know, but we're not – but there is something – I think it's funny because I was talking about this the other day. There is something about the theater that's still significant because – and I know it's a tangent, but – Friday night, you want to go hang out with your girlfriend. Literally, what is there to do? There is restaurants. 
bars and movie theaters there's a there's a play the or there's those awkward groups where strangers get together and do artwork or something you know what i mean or you know there's people that ride bikes around there's when you actually think of human activities you know throughout our history of humans we have not, never had much leisure time dating is a 19th century invention you know there was courtship for the aristocracy the average the idea the average middle class person had time to go court someone for pleasure come on you know, you had to wait for the rise of agriculture to no longer be the predominant, you know, uh, work field. So what do you actually do in modern American history? If you want to go take someone out on a theater, it's a classic thing. You don't, you know, because, you know, ultimately people run out of stuff to say to each other. So you might as well listen to what someone else has to say. So <laughs> the, uh, you know, there isn't even the premium experience of your television. You're still stuck at your house. It's not a change in environment. So I don't. I'm still bullish on the theater. I don't. I think it's going to transform. I think it'll be smaller than it was, but I don't think it's dead. Although I'm actually of the opinion that post COVID, you're going to have an entire generation of uh, young people that treats going to the movies and going to concerts and going out the way that the Depression era people taught treated food. So they're going to like, hoard it. Yeah, they're going to. Well, they're going to just like savor it. And they're going to always look for opportunities to go and be in groups and and do the kind all the things that they couldn't do during COVID. I mean, that's yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, who knows what the long term effects will this will you know will it affect a generation or will will they bounce back quickly and it'll just be sort of forgotten about the way we forgot about you know nine eleven. Well, think know? about think about pre COVID. If you were somebody that had friends who were going to a concert and you weren't totally up for it, and they said, "Hey, do you want to go to this concert?" And you're like, ah, "I don't want to go." But then after living through a year of being stuck in your house, the next time somebody says to you, hey, do you want to go to a concert? You think, I don't know if I really want to go, but man, I remember COVID. That was so terrible. I should go to that concert while I can. Live every day like it's your last. Right, live every day. <laughs> no, it's, it's possible. I think uh, I was reading something that one of the things, you know, psychologists are worried about is that people are actually going to get addicted to um, solitude. Addicted to solitude. Yeah. There's a certain percentage of people that will realize that they're their own best company. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that because from the day we're born, we are hammered with external stimuli. Commercials, we, we're told, which is wrong in my opinion, that happiness is an external thing, an energy coming into you. Yeah, I agree. That's wrong. And so if you look at the average amount of advertisements you see in a day, I mean, since we're sitting here, I felt my phone buzz at least 100 times. From Telegram, text message, email, and God knows Facebook Messenger, probably WhatsApp from Europe. You know, they're just, I, I can feel it. And so this external stimuli is hitting us so hard. Now, what happens when you take a lot of that away? A certain percentage of people are forced to look within, introspect, and realize that perhaps they were looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. And that, you know, we're taught that being alone is like a weird thing. That's what the weird kids do, you know. And it turns out that, you know, anyone who studied a moment of Hindu philosophy is like, oh, that's the path. Oh, Nirvana's that way. Oh, shit. God. You know, and and so I th there is a certain percentage of people that are going to realize that the amount of socialization they were doing before to distract themselves from having to, like, you know, stare at their young in shadow or whatever, you know, or their fear of a chaotic universe, like all of a sudden they're going to figure it out. Now, I think a lot of people will go your way, too, like, you know, like Independence Day, like, fuck it, let's let's, let's get let's get wasted. And so <laughs> I think, you know, nothing's going to ever the bars. No, and that, if yeah, there are any left, exactly. Like you know, screw it. And so, the uh, you know, it's of course nothing's ever homogenous. You know, they're going to be both ways. But I think the end result, you know, society's changing. You know, it's interesting. You know, uh, suicide rates are up. 
since uh, mid-2000s, especially among young women, which coincides with the invention of the smartphone, uh, celibacy is hugely up, which our generation, I'll be 42 tomorrow, actually, and you're about you're about my age, right? I am. I, I turned 46 on December 19th. Okay, yeah, December 9th. Yeah, so... Um, Good Sagittarius to Sagittarius conversation here. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... Uh, you Californians and your horoscope. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, uh, um, no, and so the... Our generation, I think that's, you know, maybe the one right before us, the dazed and confused, you know, shooting... They, they were listening to, you know, Skinner and, you know, banging in pickup trucks. And so now people are like, you know, it's different. You know, there's a lot of this... You know, if you look at social media, there's a lot less need for actual human interaction. It's a different form of communication. Like what we're doing right now, looking at each other across a desk, is not necessary in this modern environment. Therefore, that mechanism is never developed by a lot of people. If I can chat you over Instagram or whatever, and I can have a relationship that way, and that's accomplishing some need, why would I ever develop this other mechanism? So how are they defining celibacy? Not having sex. But are people having sex over Zoom or FaceTime or? Well, is that's that not. It's not. No, no, not at all. Is that celibate? Yeah, I mean, that's not having. You're not. There's no penetration. There's no intercourse. Got it. So no, it's, it's that the actual birth a, rates are falling. The birth rate. Yeah. It, but so, you, do you think? That, I guess when you said that, do you think it's or are you reading that it's celibacy by choice, or celibacy by isolation? That's that's where it gets interesting. You know, is. With less actual physical social interaction that's been going on, there's less of that already. Right. Now, how much of that is by choice? Well, you get the the, port, the incel, incel group, you know, it's not their choice, but, you know, maybe it is on some secondary level. Like, you know, if you just actually talk to women nice, you might, like, <laughs> like if you tried actually being a good person, like, shut up. Like, so, the, uh, you Girls know. like it when you're nice to them? It's like, no, nah, that's, that's crazy. I mean, you read that book, The Game? Like, uh, like <laughs> throw out some nags. Like, no, it doesn't really work. Like, How's that working for you? Yeah. So I think, uh, and this has been going on in Japan for a while. You know, their culture is obviously very different than ours, but, you know, they're, they're, they're negative, negative population growth and have been. So it's, uh, I mean, all this to say I'm really excited to be alive. We're in a crazy time of change. It is a crazy time of change. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I, have this, I, I do have this psychological sense that people are going to come out of COVID um, kind of like the end of a war, right? And so when I, when I think of the end of COVID, I think of the parties in the streets post-World War II and the baby people, boom and the baby boom and the people kissing in the streets, you know, that kind of. I, I, it's, I think it's different because in, in war, you come out of a war, you always have a clear enemy, you know, beat the Germans, do this. This is different. This is a war of attrition. And, and as a, we can't go shoot a virus with our Glock. And as Americans, that shakes us. You know, it's like, what do you mean I can't shoot it? Like, it's so, it's like, <laughs> it's so, it's a very different sort of war. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's like, well, what's they, a vaccine then? I mean, isn't a vaccine kind of taking it to the enemy? Well, it is, except for when you got half the population saying they're not going to take it. Right, but how is that going to affect? So if the, the people who take it, they're going to be fine. They're not affected by the people who don't take it. Well, I mean. It's only the people who don't take it who would be affecting each other. Well, they don't know how long you'll have protection for it because there's been no time to do a longitudinal study. Right. So you're saying if the vaccine isn't actually effective. Well, it, it'll be effective, but for how long? Yeah. For and that's going to be different from person to person. I mean, Fauci's come out and said, he goes, this could help you for a year. It could help you for 20 years. We don't know. And it requires two va two shots, one month apart. And they say the first one's going to make you sick, you know, like like a lot of flu does for people. But so they're worried a lot. A lot of people not coming back for the second one. So it's a it's a double thing. And so now what happens is now if you've seen the movie Contagion, 
I have not watched it yet. So it's pretty. Isn't it's, that crazy? I mean, I, I hear everybody in America has watched it during COVID. Yeah, no, it's it's great Soderbergh film. But I mean, what happens if you end up with a society where if I want to get on an airplane, I have to have a card that says I'm clean. Now, how do you enforce that if half your population won't do it? Airlines are going to be like, wait, we can't have half the country as our customers. That's screwed. We can't. What's so? What? What are they going to do? Are they going to, now there is precedent. To go to schools, you have to have a certain amount of vaccinations, and we're fine with that. You know, unless you're, you know, from LA or something. You know, it's like we're all pretty much fine with. You know, <laughs> we accept that. Um, you think the home of anti-vaxing is LA? Oh yeah, I lived there for ten years. <laughs> all, these, all these people are my friends, and I'm like, you can't possibly believe that. And then they start talking about horoscopes right after. I'm like, listen, all right. And so the, uh, it, the I I I don't know what's going to happen because people have verified concern. They're like, wait, you guys just rushed. Previous record for a vaccine was like three years. You just rush this through in under a year. Now, granted, the mRNA approach is very different, but what does that do to society if it's there's these haves and the have-nots? I mean, this this it starts to feel a bit, you know, 1940s Germany to a second. Like, wait, where's your papers? And you're like, no, I'm clean. And like, I just want to go to the Seahawks game. They're like, you don't have the vaccination. No, I do. I just forgot my thing. Like, well, let me see your digital ID. It's you in, it's in your wrist, your digital ID. Well, it I, came with the vaccination. As a tech guy, I'd be great with that. As a reader of the Book of Revelations, eh, you know, <laughs> like freaks you out a little bit. What's the number there? Is it six 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 two? Okay, that's cool. Like, <laughs> All right, listen, we could do this for hours and hours and hours, and we should actually because this is so much fun. But we're out of time today, so. Uh, you and I should start thinking about how we do this more often. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but um, for today, let's wrap it up. Thanks for being here today. No, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. What a, what a pleasure. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios Podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap.